as we, we jump in this series of problem of God, I want to give you two passages that's going to kind of be foundational uh, for our study because what we saw in this video is, is revealing the heart of, of many people that, 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 that these are the things that they hear without really maybe looking at the other side and coming to a, a, a better conclusion. And you might be here today and you might have those same questions. You're like, yeah, that, that what they just said makes a, a, a lot of sense to me. You might be here today and you're like, you know, I, I believe in Jesus, but uh, I'm, I don't really know a whole lot. I, I, you know, I know that he's God's son and that's what they say. And I know that, he, you know, he's born from Mary. But if people ask me really tough questions, I don't know if I'd be able to answer those things. Here is my hope for you today. My hope for you today is that we will absolutely walk out of this place knowing who Jesus is. So just knowing who he is. So even if we can get, if we can get, if, we, I, if I can get you, if you've come in today and you're skeptical and I can just get you to that point where you're like, okay, I see who Jesus was. We're going to define Jesus. We need to start there. That's where we really, we've, we've got to start there. So I, I want to, I want to give you two passages right off the bat here of, 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 a, of an apostle of, of Jesus who became a believer who wasn't before. So, so you have someone who Jesus says, come follow me. And someone who was a witness to the person of Jesus and, and came to realize that Jesus was just more than a prophet that came or, or maybe just a moral teacher who came. Cause that's what many people believe about Jesus is that I can accept that he's just a prophet or maybe just a good moral teacher, but to actually say that he's the son of God, that he is God. Um, that's kind of where the rub is. That's kind of where like, ah, I got to jump off, off that train. So here's someone who has come to that realization, who has a testimony of Christ, who witnessed him and his resurrection. And this is what John came to say. Let's, let's look at a couple passages here in first John, first John five thirteen says, here's, here's what he says. He goes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know. And that you may have what? Eternal life. Okay. Then jumping down a little further there in the same chapter, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. He's given us understanding, the Son of God, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In the Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. That's the foundation of what we're going to look at. So I know many of you, you may have had conversations with people about God, maybe a family member, maybe a coworker, and, um, and they've asked pretty good questions and you may have struggled to answer them and, and, and maybe you didn't even have an answer for them. And I, and I know a, a lot of the go-to um, questions for a lot of people that are skeptical are good ones. And, and, and they, they may even say, you know, well, you know, the church is... A bunch of hypocrites and, you know, which I always say, come on, because we go use one more, right? So, you know, at the end, listen, the, there's, the, the followers of Jesus haven't always done a great job following Jesus. Can I get an amen? Let's just, you know, but, but we have to come back to Jesus. That, that can't be your only excuse. Is just saying, well, the church is a bunch of hypocrites and maybe the followers of Jesus, those who claim to be followers of Jesus, didn't really do a good job at, at following him. One, one thing, one thing um, that bothers me that I've seen in this trend that I've seen is that uh, many 
young people that who have maybe grown up in church um, kind of go the way of losing their faith once they enter college. Maybe they take a, uh, a biology class and they're challenged on their worldview and they begin to drift away and doubt their walk because of maybe some challenges that the professor lays out before them. And I think we have a couple factors going on here. One, the church may have failed to address these issues where, where we don't, where, where we just say, I just, just have faith. And I, and I can remember, I had the same conversation with my son, Colby, who is now a junior at the U of R. And I remember when he was about 12 or 13 years old, he just came up to me and he says, dad, how do we know that the word of God is the word of God. How can we trust it? And I looked at him, because you're supposed to. That's it. Now go away. No, I didn't say that to him. I, you know, that's kind of the answer we get. You just got to believe it, right? So I said, Colby, that's a great, great, um, that's, that's a great question. So what I did is I, I gave him some books to read. I gave him some books to, to challenge um, and to give him some answers to that. And so I gave him these books to read and he read them. And he comes back to me a little while later and he goes, he goes, I'm good. I'm like, okay, good meaning how good? Like, good you don't believe in this or good that? He goes, no, I'm good. I, I, I understand you gave me some great stuff to, to sink my teeth into, and now I understand. And this was like 12 or 13 years, and I gave him like college-level books to read, and he did. Um, he read some very difficult books on the problem of evolution. He read Michael Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box, which is, if you've ever read that book, it's like, wow, it's deep, but it really puts holes and the evolutionary philosophy. And he read that. And he's like, okay, Dad, I'm good. Thanks for letting me, let me do this. Most people don't get to that point. That, that's the problem. Many of our kids go away to college and they don't get to that point where they actually look at the other side and, and realize that there are intelligent people, very smart people, who are followers of Jesus, who have come to the conclusion that this is truth. Okay, so, so I, want, I want to relieve you today that it's just, it's, it's not some foolishness that foolish people who are ignorant have come to this conclusion. And so there are answers for us, and you don't have to check your brain at the door of the church in order to believe that this is, is, is truth. And so, you know, the questions are, you know, you know, do faith and science have to contradict each other? Do we have to throw one out with the other? Is the only answer to have faith in faith? Or can, can we have a faith that is verified, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's verified, can, can, that's authenticated? And the answer is yes. So what I want to do over the next month is tackle these issues head on. I want to look at what the skeptics are asking. And what we're looking at, these are the most asked questions by skeptics. So that's what we, that's what we want to dive. We're not going to, we're not going to shy away from, we're going to look at this. This is what the skeptics are asking. And this is what the book, uh, the problem of God is all about. And they've answering what skeptics are answering when I address these difficult questions. And so I want to look at why so many in our world today are disconnecting with religion. This is a huge issue today. It's not, it's not that people are necessarily, research is showing us that it's not necessarily that people are turning to atheism. What's happening is, is they find uh, that the faith that they grew up in is not appealing anymore. And so what they're doing is they're leaving their faith, not necessarily to, to become an agnostic or to become an atheist, but just kind of not believing in anything. 
And it's interesting. There's an interesting segment in our society and they've named them and they're called the nuns. Now, this is not nuns like you think in a Catholic church. I know some of you just had flashbacks of, of your education or whatever. Uh, that's not what they're saying. Basically, nuns, it's, it's, the nuns are those who do not identify with any religious group. They're not agnostic. They're not atheistic. Uh, they just have no religious affiliation. It's just kind of benign. They're just kind of like, eh, I don't, I don't really care. I don't have any interest in it. And uh, it, it, it's even, uh, they've discovered that it's, uh, they don't have any certain denominational tie. They've, they've chose not to affiliate it with anyone. So basically, it's nothing in particular. And so they have this none or non-affiliated, and they make up about 23% of our population. And the biggest growing segment of this are millennials. That's why we have to address this issue. We just, listen, people, can you just listen to me for a moment? We just can't say, just come to church and you'll figure it all out. They've got to discover that we have to give people answers for why we believe what we believe. And that's why I want to start with Jesus today. That's the foundation. If we don't have a correct understanding about Jesus, everything else, all our foundation will whittle away. So there's a couple things that researchers have found about the nuns. One is they've walked away from their childhood religious upbringing. And we probably all know someone that's like that. They're brought up in church. All of a sudden they get into college or whatever, and then they've drifted away. Second, um, there are some that have absolutely no religious upbringing at all. And this, this this one is very true today. I mean, I can remember, let me just give you a personal story. I can remember... When I was a child growing up, I really didn't know anyone that didn't attend church or synagogue. I mean, it was just like, even even if it was the Christers, just Easter and Christmas. I mean, everybody went to church. Now, there are those, I met a girl, I shared this last week, I met a girl that came to our church on a Wednesday night, someone invited her, and she goes, hey, this is the first time I've been to church. And I go, that's great, welcome. She goes, no, this is the first time I've ever been to church. Ever. Absolutely no religious upbringing whatsoever. No knowledge about completely, completely unchurched. And that is what we're seeing uh, and, and the rise of. So what researchers have discovered is, is the stigma of not being affiliated with a denomination is slowly losing ground. In fact, it's losing ground very quickly. And so what people would say that, you know, I'm Catholic or I'm Presbyterian, I'm Baptist, or uh, I go to church, you know, once a year, uh, those things are, are, are slowly uh, ebbing away. Um, and, and, I, and I grew up, I mean, I grew up um, in church. I grew up my whole life in a church culture. Um, it, it's easy to see within the church the good, the bad, and the ugly. I've, I've seen all kind of ways to do church. Um, but what causes people to look at Christians with such negative thoughts that we see in our society? What, what has caused the church to be less attractive and inviting? And, and I believe a couple things here. So let, let me lay this foundation first. Here's the reason why I believe churches become less attractive. I think what, what has happened over years past is we became too churchy. Now, pastor, what in the world does that mean? How can you become too churchy? What I mean by that is, we became more in love with the way we do things than people. We became more in love with the way we do church, where you have to come and you have to fit into our certain mold. 
than people who actually need God and are looking for answers. And many times the churches are trying to answer questions that people aren't asking. That's a problem. That's why we're doing this series. We want to answer questions that people are asking questions. And that's what it means to be relevant. We need to be relevant in our culture today that people are struggling to get these questions answers and they're turning to the other side to find answers. And we need to do a better job as a church. So we can, so, so we can get so ingrained in our church culture that we forget about those that Jesus actually died for. And this is why I want to do this service, uh, do these series in, the, in these services. So, so let me give you a couple things right off the bat here, a couple statements here. Let me give you this first statement and, and look up at the screen here because I want you to see this. We need to know what we believe, but at the same time, we also need to, to know who we believe in. We need to know what we believe, but we also need to know who we believe in. And here's what I want you to understand. What changed the lives of Jesus' disciples? What changed the life of the Apostle Paul, who was so anti-Christian and wanted Christians killed? What caused Jesus' disciples to give their lives as martyrs, the majority of them? Here's the, here, here's the answer. The answer is they all witnessed the risen person of Jesus. They all witnessed the risen person of Jesus. In order to have a solid Christian worldview and to be able to answer the questions that people come against the church, we have to give people a true understanding of who Jesus is and why he came. And who he is, because this is what changes everything. I I want people to be drawn to Christ, not another uh, religion or rules and regulations, but a living relationship with Jesus that will change their lives. Mundane, lifeless religion changes no one. Jesus came to radically change your life and have a relationship with you, not give you another religion. So a living relationship with Jesus, this is what it will do. It will change the way we live, the way we think, and the way we act. That's what Jesus does. So, so maybe, maybe the reason so many have walked away is for the simple reason that we, let me point it at us, the church, that we haven't correctly represented Jesus or understood the real Jesus. Maybe, maybe, can I just say maybe? Everybody say maybe. Maybe, okay, maybe over years, because I'm old now, I'm 52, so I'm considered old, okay, maybe we responded to cultural Christianity. What do I mean by that? I believe many times we responded to a type of Christianity, a cultural Christianity, all the do's and don'ts, be good, be a good boy, little Johnny, be a good girl, little Susie, you know, don't, don't chew or do all that stuff or go with girls that do, right? Don't, don't do any of that stuff, John or Susie, be, be good, be good, be good. We may have responded to a cultural Christianity, but we really didn't respond to Jesus, And so what we're seeing, maybe over years past, that, that in our culture, we had all these guardrails and everybody responded right and everybody minded their P's and Q's, but we're not seeing that today, are we? <laughs> Boy, we're not seeing that. We need to give people Jesus. 
Jesus is what changes the hearts and lives of people. Jesus is what causes us to live holy lives. Jesus is what calls us to repent from our sins and move away from those things that I used to do. Jesus does that. But we just come in and try to set a bunch of guide, you know, guidelines. You got to do this, doing that. People walk away from that. But when there's a living, breathing, living relationship with Jesus, everything changes in your life. And so what happens is, if, if for, for, for kids that grew up in church, and if they just grew up with this culture type of Christianity where you just go to church, and I, okay, I, I do the right things, and all of a sudden they get to college as a freshman, and they sit in our first biology class, and the professor may actually pick out uh, Christians, and they may, he may pick out their beliefs, maybe beliefs on creation, maybe they pick out the age of the earth, or maybe Noah and the ark, may, maybe uh, Jonah and the, and the big fish, whatever it may be, and they start whittling away at that stuff, and all of a sudden, the pers- all of a sudden that that, that college student that grew up in church starts to think, hmm, they have questions. And if, if those things are wrong, then I guess it whittles away all my other belief, and then they begin to, to, to walk away. But here, here, here's, here's my question. Let me push back a little bit here. You will usually hear them never talk about Jesus. They'll go to the Old Testament. They'll go to creation. They'll go to these other stories, and, and they'll go to those Old Testament accounts. But at the end of the day, there may be different theories on the age of the earth and, and, and so on and so forth. But here's the thing I want you to realize. They never deal with the person of Jesus. That's what we need to deal with. Do, does questions about the age of the earth and those things whittle away and completely disintegrate our belief in Jesus? The answer is no. Please understand that. So if you're here today and you sat in a biology class and you heard your professor say all these things, you're like, well, it may be, I'm here to show you that it doesn't whittle away, uh, whittle away. There may be different theories on that, but I want, I want you to know today, know to know to know that it doesn't whittle away at the person of Jesus. And that's what I want to look at today. There is no doubt that Jesus was a historical figure. Every world religion recognizes this as well. So this is where we need to start. We need to start with the person of Jesus. Christianity does not rise or fall. Our whole premise about what we believe about Jesus does not rise or fall on what we believe the age of the earth is. Okay. So let's just get that under, let's just understand it. But let me throw this statement out to you. Christianity does rise and fall on the deity and the resurrection of Jesus. So, so this is where we need to really drill down on because if, if his deity and his resurrection aren't true, then Paul says, all my preaching is futile and in vain. So this is where we need, is, is Jesus claiming to be the son of God and his resurrection? Can we authenticate that? And I believe we can. So our, our, so our argument, let's not argue about these Old Testament things. Let's just put that to the side for now. We'll get into the, that stuff in a couple of weeks. But let's just put that to the side and let's just talk about Jesus. Can we just talk about Jesus? Say, wouldn't that be good because we're in church? So let's talk about Jesus today. So let, let's see what it says. If, if Jesus isn't God or if the resurrection isn't true, Christianity is just another belief system. Okay, so if those two things aren't true, then it's just another belief system with all the other religious belief systems. So what I want to do is I want to go back to the original passage we read in the beginning. John, a witness to the resurrection, said, I write these things and and I'm a witness to these things. Jesus is who he says he is. Knowing him is what gives you eternal life. Everything he has told us is true. Now, my question is this. Who is the only person that can give you eternal life? 
God, right? So in that statement that John is making, he's making a statement that the only person that can give you eternal life is God. Jesus is God. And so what I want you to see is to understand Jesus' claim of divinity, we have to get into kind of an Eastern mindset. Because Jesus says this to Jewish listeners, and saying this would simply be scandalous at that time. Because they're monotheistic. They believe in one God. So for Jesus to come and say, I'm God, and, and to say, um, you know, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And to say that I'm the Son of God would absolutely be scandalous. And that's why they wanted, that's why the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees wanted Jesus killed. Because that would be blasphemous. That's the reason why Jesus went to the cross. That's the reason why they arrested him. Because it was blasphemous to say that he was equal with God. So an objection to Jesus' deity may come from the idea, and this is what some skeptics say, that Jesus never claimed to be God by using those exact words, I am God. And so we don't have those exact words, I am God, written for us in written record. Now, in our Western way of thinking, we want Jesus just to say, just to come out and just say, would you just say I'm God? That's in our Western way of thinking. Just, Just get on with it and just say, that you're God. But I want you to see that Jesus goes much deeper in describing who he was. Much deeper. Jesus speaking in his own words to his culture at that time claimed divinity. And that's what I want to unpack for you today. So what Jesus does is he claims to be Israel's God. Israel's God is monotheistic, meaning one God, not like the other nations who were polytheistic, believing in many types of gods. And this is, this is the God who called Abraham and Moses, who created all things, who is sovereign, who alone is to be worshipped, and is the only one able to forgive sins. This is their God. So what the Jews were doing is they were looking for a Messiah to come, but this is where the rub comes in. They were looking for a political Messiah that would deliver them from oppression. They were not looking for a God on earth who would go to the cross and actually die for their sins that he would become our substitute. They were looking for one who would be like Moses or Isaiah, who would lead the way. But God himself in the form of man, that would literally be ludicrous. That would be insanity. It would be very difficult for them to understand this. So Jesus is in this discussion. And this discussion gets real intense. And, 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 and Jesus starts making this uh, you know, just audacious claim about himself. The claim would identify him and would cause him to, to make such a stir that some of the Jews listening wanted to kill him for blasphemy or claiming to be God. And this claim would separate Jesus from just being a miracle worker or a good teacher or a prophet. This is where Jesus separates himself from every other prophet or, or moral teacher. And so I want to show you what Jesus says about himself. This isn't what other people say about Jesus. This isn't what I say about Jesus. This is what Jesus says about himself. Here's how we can find Jesus as God in scripture. So what does Jesus claim about himself? What does Jesus claim about himself? So let's, I'm going to run these for you uh, on the screen. So let's look at the first one here. What does Jesus claim about himself? What does Jesus claim there? Okay, so let's see. Okay, so here we go. What does Jesus claim? Here's the first one. Jesus calls himself what? 
the great I am. This is probably the most audacious claim that he will make when he calls himself the great I am. Now, some of you sitting here today, you may, you may be like, okay, what's the big deal? So he calls himself the great, great I am. Didn't Muhammad Ali say that he was the greatest, right? Big deal. You know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. No one is great as my, I don't know. No one is great as Muhammad Ali. I don't know what else he said, but you know, what's the big deal? Now, now once again, let, let's jump into this Eastern mindset here, because for the Jews that are listening, they would say, what, what did you just say? You called yourself the great I am Jesus. Uh, this, this is recorded. This conversation is recorded for us in the eighth chapter of John. So, so let follow me here. So let's go with John chapter eight. Here, ready? Here we go. It says your father, Abraham rejected that he would see the day he saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, which means amen and amen, or this is truth. This is truth. He says it twice. He says, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Wait a minute. So before Abraham was, I am. Abraham is the father of their faith. And you're saying you were before Abraham. He's not not only saying that he's saying, but I am. And so they picked up stones right then to throw it at him because Jesus himself went out of the temple. So right there, they wanted to kill him because it was blasphemy. So right there, Jesus claims to be God. I am. That's only reserved for God. And so here's the big deal. The big deal is they wanted to kill him because it was blasphemous to say this. Here's the second thing I want you to see. What, what does Jesus claim about himself? Well, Jesus claims his preexistence here. This is important. He existed before Abraham, the father of our faith. He speaks to his existence before the creation of the world. So this I am statement not only claims that he's God, but also claims his preexistence. That I was here before Abraham. He's a father of faith, but I'm greater than him claiming to be God. The third thing I want you to there is Jesus says that he actually came from heaven by saying this. John six thirty eight says, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In fact, in John's gospel alone, Jesus says he has come down from heaven 39 times. How much clearer can Jesus be on who he is? There is no, listen to me. See, what we want to do is we want to say, we want to join hands and sing Kumbaya and say every world religion is basically the same. No, it's not. When you really begin to dig under the surface, they may have some similar premises about doing good to people and being generous, whatever. There There may be some similarities in that way. But when you really dig down on the surface, Christianity couldn't be further than any other world religion because of Jesus. So Jesus says he's come down from heaven. And this is the reason why there's no other major religious figure that has ever made that claim. None except for Jesus. So Jesus using the I am statement would actually perk up the ears of the listeners. And here's the reason why, because at the beginning of the book, when they, when he says that he's been before Moses at the beginning of the book of Exodus, God appears to Moses and tells him that he is to lead his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. They've been in Egypt for 400 years. God raises up Moses. He says to Charleston Heston, let my people go. So he leads him through the Red Sea, right? So, so he, 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 when he's saying on the I am, I want you to understand, this is something that God says 
to Moses. Moses, when he gets the calling of God, hears God's voice from a burning bush. And, he, and Moses says, who should I tell them sent me? What is your name? What authority do I have to say who's going to send me to lead you out? How are they going to follow me if they don't know who's sending me? And God tells Moses, tell them, I am who I am. I am has sent you. The I am statement is one of the most sacred names for God in all of the Old Testament. Jesus says that I am. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door. Claiming his deity. This name for God means the one and only God of the universe. Now, can you get an understanding of why they wanted to kill Jesus? Claiming to be God was punishable by stoning. Now, if that's not enough, let's see some of the things, other things that Jesus said. Here's another thing that Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches people to pray to him. The, to pray to a deity, that was only reserved for God. John 16, 24 It says, until now you have asked me nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus is telling them to pray to him, which was only reserved for God. And the fifth thing I want you to see is Jesus didn't stop people, not only from praying to him, but also he didn't stop them from worshiping him. I love this in in the latter chapters of of John, uh, Thomas one of the subs is doubting that Jesus rose from the grave. And so Jesus appears to him and the other subs are trying to say, no, no, it's real. It's real. It's real. And he goes, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to believe until I see for myself. And Thomas sees Jesus and Thomas answering and says, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, you have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet have believed. See, Thomas believed because he saw him and he worshiped him. My Lord and my what? God only reserved for deity. So if Jesus wasn't God, wouldn't he have stopped people from praying to him? Wouldn't he have stopped him from worshiping him? Remember, remember when John had the vision of revelation, he saw the angel and the angel said, listen, don't bow down and worship me. That's I'm, don't bow down and worship me. That's only reserved for God. That's only reserved for Jesus. Wouldn't he have stopped him? What convinced Thomas when he doubted at first, he didn't believe at first. In so many ways, we're just like Thomas. I'll only believe when I see. There's this interesting quote. I love this book by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a, a, just a theologian, wrote, kind of lived during World War II era, um, wrote a book called Mere Christianity. I would recommend it for all of you. Great apologetic book. He has this quote, Mere Mere Christianity, that I love. And basically, it's, many of you have heard this quote, it's the the lunatic liar or lord scenario. What what are we to do with Jesus and his claims? And what C.S. Lewis does, he gives this philosophical argument about Jesus. These are the claims that Jesus makes about himself. So if you're going to believe Jesus, you have to believe in one of three things. You have to believe that he's a complete lunatic on the same level as a poached egg. You've got to, I mean, he just, to make those claims, you just got to be, Nuts, just, you know, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Okay, he's just, he's, he's cuckoo. Or he has to be a liar, just one of the greatest liars in all the world for people that believe that. Or from what we just discussed in these five things that he said about himself, he has to be Lord. So it's kind of the mad, bad, or God scenario. Um, you have, this is how we have to accept Christ. You can't, you can't, he says, we can't make the mistake, C.S. Lewis said, and just saying that he's a good moral teacher. 
because he never gave us that. He never said he was just a good moral teacher. You, you can't just say, well, he was just a prophet. He never said that. He actually said he was God. So the, the argument, the rub is that he's either God or he's not. That's what we have. Now, now you, you might be here today and you might say, okay, Pastor Barden, that's all, that's all great. But what if his followers made that up about him being God? What if he just, listen, I, I'm not going to argue that he wasn't a historical figure. He probably came to earth. He probably did some good things. I, I, may, I may even give you the miracle part. All right. I'm not even going to argue that. But to him to say he's God, couldn't that just be legend that his, his followers just kind of made up along the way just to, just to allow his followers later on just to believe um, that he was, he was God. Um, C.S. Lewis answers that question too. C.S. Lewis in 1950 wrote an essay, What Are We to Make of Jesus? And in this essay, he explains this really well. I like what he says here. He says, he says, we, he says we may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. Not, he did not produce the effects on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, or adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? I love C.S. Lewis. Here's what else I want you to So to answer the question about, you know, because he answers the rebuttal that, that maybe Jesus didn't really say these things or say that he was God and his followers exaggerated the story and legend grew um, that he really said these things. But Lewis brings out another great thing that I love here. He says, Lewis shows how unlikely it would be for the Jews to invent God became man. The incarnation of Jesus here on earth, that God actually became man to pay for our sins. To that, C.S. Lewis says this. This is difficult because his followers were all Jews at the beginning. That is, they belong to that nation of which all others was most convinced that there was only one God, one true God. There, 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 there could not ever possibly be another. And it's very odd that this horrible invention about a religious leader should grow up among the one people in the whole earth least likely to make such a great mistake. On the contrary, we get the impression that none of his immediate followers or even of the New Testament writers embraced that doctrine at all that easily. How to understand the doctrine of the Trinity is very difficult to understand. And so there is no, what C.S. Lewis is saying, why would his followers make up this legend about something that they wouldn't, they wouldn't even believe unless Jesus showed that to them? Why, why would his followers, why would the disciples give their lives for a lie? Because they boasted in the resurrection. Don't you think somebody after a while would say, whoa, time out. This was fun for a while, but I'm not going to give my life for a lie. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to tell people I actually saw Jesus when I never did, when I never witnessed the resurrection. See, these early apostles and disciples can corroborate the risen Savior because they saw him. That's why they gave their life. Why would they make this up later to continue a legend. And, and, and we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks too. 
about how the legend theory doesn't work because the writings are so close to the original acts of what happened. There wasn't enough time for legend to occur. So I appreciate what C.S. Lewis says here. But let me finish with this. Let me just finish with this. Here's here's the overall issue, I think, that we struggle. Um, I can can point out all these things, and and we can corroborate the person of Christ and who he is and who he said he, he is. Over and over and over again, God displays his miracles among Israel in the desert, yet they still had, what, a hardened heart. Even with all the miracles, they still, their hearts were hardened in so many ways. Jesus performed miracle after miracle, and yet many people still did not believe, right before their very eyes, and still did not believe. When you look at the cosmos and you look at the universe, it should humble us and cause us to realize that we don't know as much as we think we know. We don't know that. It it, it should humble us. But instead of looking at our universe and saying, man, there must be something behind this that's created this, we would rather rely on our own futile knowledge to believe that there's not something that created this. See, at the end of the day, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ because Jesus is no longer in the tomb. Man has tried to deny this reality, yet this one man, Jesus, has made the greatest impact in our world than any other religious or any other figure ever in history. See, here's, the, here's what separates a relationship with Jesus from every other world belief. A relationship with Jesus is based on grace, not works, not my performance. He is different than Every other religious figure, that's why I believe in him. Have you ever, have you ever tried helping someone who didn't, who didn't want help? You ever tried that? You, you, you just, you knew the answer. You knew they were hurting themselves. You knew they were going down a bad road. You, you, you were pleading with them. Listen, if you keep doing this, this is going to not end well. Maybe it was someone with an addiction or maybe um, it was, it was going to be someone who's going to make a, a huge mistake. Or maybe it was that friend you grew up with and he got the big umbrella and he says, I'm going to jump off the roof because I want to be like Mary Poppins, right? And you're like, no, that's not a good idea, right? And, and you just, you see it and you, you, you know, maybe it was that guy your, broader, your daughter brought home one day. I, I don't know what it is, but, but you were like, Man, you're making this huge mistake. See, maybe for many people, they don't want to look into the claims of Christ. They would rather believe what they believe, even if it's not true. See, if, if we're going to walk, let me, just, let me just talk to some of you that are just maybe struggling or you're walking, you're walking down this road and you're like, I'm not sure if I believe this, this Pastor Barden, which is fine. I'm so glad you're here, and I want you to keep coming back. But here's the problem. I'm going to be dead honest with you, and we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. I can't wait. Next week, we're going to talk about science and evolution and all that stuff, so we're going to talk about this. But let, let me, can I give you a little preview? Let me just give you a little snippet. Here, here's what we see. Many scientists approach their scientific views with their philosophy first, not their scientific evidence. Let's all be honest with that, okay? They have a presupposition rather not to go to an intelligent design or creator because they don't want to go there. Because the reason if you go there, listen, if we, if we, if we, and we know this, we know that the earth is finely tuned. And if we go there, then what's the next step? 
There's got to be a creator. And we're going to next that there's got to be a God. And we don't want to go there. We just want to have, we just want it to be naturalistic and believe it. But, but philosophically speaking, that is so ignorant. For the life of me, I can't understand philosophically with all the evidence we have that we don't see a master handprint on everything. How things are so finely tuned. And let me come back to this. I don't want to to give away my message for next week, but here's the thing. The reason why I don't think we want to approach Jesus or maybe get to know too much about him, because if I do that, I'm going to have to face my sins. See, I'm going to have to face the truth and and we know that, how many know the truth hurts? Do we, do we know that the truth hurts? And, 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 but it's the truth that does what? It's the truth that sets us free. And Jesus came to set us free. Jesus came as the son of God, as God, to show us the truth, to bring us back into a right relationship with God. You, you have to be able to answer three questions in your life. If you can't answer these three questions, you're going to have a very difficult time answering the world's philosophical approach of why we're here. You have to know why we're here. Why are we here? What's, what created us? What, what is the origins of, of life? We, we have to answer the question of, of, of morality and why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? We have to answer it. Christianity gives us the answer. Christianity gives us the answer to the first question. And the third thing is we have to answer the question of how do we fix it? How do you fix the mess that we're in? And all three questions are answered in, in Christianity. I go with Ravi. If none of you have ever listened to Ravi Zacharias. I would encourage you, go, go on YouTube, get his books. He's a great apologist. He goes, just a humble man, goes into colleges and, and debates these philosophies. Just, I, I love Ravi Zacharias. But, but Ravi Zacharias has come to the conclusion that there is no other philosophical approach that he can find anywhere that, that Christianity is not the best. And has the most best and most clearest answers for us in answering those three questions. So let me go back to the beginning here. Let me go back to the beginning. Let me go back to the beginning. Here's what John says. John says, I write these things to you. I'm going to ask Katie to come on up and we're going to, we're going to take communion together. And, and uh, we're just going to close just worshiping and taking communion as a family of God. But let me go back to what, what John says here. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may, that you may know that you have eternal life. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding, made it all clear to us so that you may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Broadcaster Larry King, um, was being interviewed and uh, they, asked, they asked Larry King, they said, if you, could, um, if you could interview one person in history, who would it be? And he said, hands down, it would be Jesus Christ. I'd want to interview him. And so the follow-up question was, well, um, you know, what, what would you ask Jesus if you had a chance to interview him one-on-one? He goes, without a doubt, without a doubt, I would ask him if he was really born of a virgin. Because the answer to that question changes everything. Let me put it another way. Everything depends on what you believe about Jesus Christ. 
Not what you believe about creation. Those things are, we'll talk about, those are important. Not what you believe about dinosaurs. Those, we'll talk about those, okay, because I know that's the first. Are we going to talk about dinosaurs? Yeah, we're going to talk about dinosaurs, okay? But listen, put that to the side. Everything hinges, everything hangs on what you believe about Jesus because of what Jesus said about himself. And that's my plea to you here today that you would take a step of faith and put your faith in Christ and believe that he is the son of God, that he indeed died for your sins, that he wants to have a living, vital relationship with you. That's the reason why he came, to become our substitute on the cross. That's why we celebrate communion. Communion is all about remembering what the son of God did for us. He became our substitute on the cross and took our sin and took the penalty that should have been towards us. He took all of that upon himself. Listen, there is no other person on the face of the earth that can, that can sympathize and empathize and understand everything that you go through. He was rejected. He suffered. He bore all our sins. He can sympathize with you. And when you come to him, and you fall on his mercy and grace, you will find forgiveness and grace and mercy in your time of need. That's who Jesus is. You know, the greatest distance between heaven and hell is 18 inches. We all know that, right? We may know it up here, but Jesus wants your heart. He wants everything about you. He wants to change your life. That's why he came to change your life and to change your course from me-centered to God-centered. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to have a changed life. Covers us, heals us, and changes us. Now, how many of you know that doesn't mean you're going to live a perfect life or that you're never going to make another mistake or that you're not going to struggle like everybody else? Jesus Christ changes your position from one who was enemies with God to one who's now a friend with God. Only Jesus can do that. He's either God or he's not. There's no middle ground. So my prayer for you today is that you would reach out to Christ and you would put your hope in him. And by all means, take communion with us as the family of God. You don't have to be a member of our church. Take communion. You have to be a member of God's family. And so let me pray for you today as we just prepare our hearts for communion today. Would you bow your hearts with me today? Father God, I want to thank you for your word today. I want to thank you for who Jesus is. And I pray for anyone here today that is just searching, that's struggling, that, they, that they'll keep coming, God, every week that you'll keep revealing things to their heart and who you are. I thank you, Jesus, that you didn't make it hard for us to find you or to know you, that you clearly, clearly told us who you are and that John, through his writings and witnessing who you are, Jesus, came to the conclusion that you are the Son of God and you are the one who holds eternal life in your hands. God, I pray for anyone here who's on the fence. 
they would turn their hearts over to you, Jesus, in their lives, and that they would find forgiveness for their sins in you, Jesus. That you came not to just give us another just religious thoughts and teachings, but to actually change our lives. To have a relationship with us, because without that, we are lost and we are condemned. And so, Father God, I pray that you would just reach every heart here today. And we just turn our lives over to you. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. We thank you. In your wonderful name, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come at this time. We're going to, we're going to serve you communion. They're going to serve you at your seats. And uh, if you could just hold partaking in communion to the end, I will lead us together as the family of God to partake together. And uh, as the ushers are serving you, uh, you can just worship along with the worship team. So God bless you as we serve you communion this morning. Amen. What a sin.